Jesus had never been spoken. I had never heard the word sin one time in my life. I had never given God a thought until I was 15 years old in October uh, 1995. Just tell you how old I am. And the very first time I heard the name of Jesus, I knew it was true. I gladly gave my life over to him. And then it was very interesting because, and my kids must have heard me tell the story a thousand times, I went up in a tree. I was about 20 feet off the ground, and I climbed a tree, and I sat there, and I just started weeping. And I was weeping and weeping, and what God was doing in my mind and my heart in that moment was that there was a memory reel of all the worst times that my dad had ever done things to me. And my mom was complicit in it. And just these memories are just going through my head. And from just a young age, things I've even just kind of suppressed and blocked out are just coming up. And it's like, oh, yeah, that was terrible. At the same time it's coming up, the Lord is helping me with all that rage to just forgive. Something that was unfathomable, that I didn't even know forgiveness was a thing or why I would want to do it. Like, it's more like vengeance was the right way for me. So I'm up in a tree the night I get saved. With a, there's a youth thing going on. People are still playing kickball down there. And I, as the same moment, I'm being fully aware of my horrible earthly father who came to Christ on his deathbed. And so I don't mean to speak ill, uh, but he, he came to Christ, praise God. But in that tree, I'm able to forgive in a moment. My heart gets completely changed. And I begin to understand that, yes, I had not the best father on earth, but that I had a perfect father in heaven. And I was in that tree for about three and a half hours. It was from about 9.30 to like 1 in the morning. And I come down out of the tree, and I had, again, never been to church, didn't speak the Christianese language yet. And my buddy Jeremy, who had invited me to this um, activity, this youth activity, had said, what were you doing in the tree, bro? <laughs> like, what? You spent three hours in a tree. And I, and I said, man, I was forgiving my dad. He's like, what? I was like, yeah, just a bunch of stuff. You know, you don't really share that kind of detail with some of your friends sometimes. But I was like, yeah, you know, my old man's kind of rough. Um, just forgiving him, you know. He's like, oh, that's good. Yeah, he's like, you know, I've been forgiven. And he's like, okay, you know. And then I said, yeah, and I got a perfect father in heaven. And he's like, where'd you hear that? And I was like, I just in the tree. <laughs> and he's like looking at me funny. He's, he's, I'm 15, he's 14. I'm a sophomore. He's a freshman in, in high school. And um, I just, yeah, I've got a perfect father in heaven. And it's interesting how that night, by hearing the gospel the very first time, completely changed me. I was a vengeful, spiteful, belligerent, hard-nosed, stiff-necked, brawling punk. And in that moment, my life changed. My eternity changed, but my life changed. And I thank God for that. And so when we talk about a epidemic, an epidemic of rage, um, it's real. It's happening. It's been happening. It's the kids that were my age that were taking it are now having kids and perpetuating that cycle. And it's just making it worse and worse and worse. It doesn't get better by generation. It often gets worse unless God intervenes. And so I tell you that testimony to say there's hope because these these individuals who are so rage-filled can 
receive the gospel, can have their heart transformed. And yes, for some of us, it takes a process. For some people I know, it took years of seeking and searching and diving in and understanding. And, and it seemed like God was slowly chipping block after block, little by little, just kind of breaking away some of the chains. Um, and yet sometimes miraculously can happen in the blink of an eye. And he can do a work in a heart in three hours in a tree. And so um, God is moving. And, and that's what we talked about last week. Uh, we talked about the pursuit of God after us. We're going to continue that in the tabernacle now. Um, so let's pray. Father, we do lift up all the families. And these are the three we mentioned today are the three most recent tragedies. And they're just the ones in our country, Lord. There are things going on in this world that are so... Lord, we just lift these things up to you. Lord, you are faithful. You are true. You are good. You desire ultimately, Lord, that none would perish, but that all would come to everlasting life. And Lord, you are the God of all comfort. And so we lift these things up to you. I can do nothing, Lord, sometimes. I feel... I feel weak, Lord. I feel helpless. But in these times, Lord, when we're weak, you're strong. And so we lean on you. Would you lead us and guide us to this study? Would you be glorified in this study? Would you grow our hearts? If we're walking with you, Lord, nearer to you. If we've never heard of you for the first time, Lord, today, would we repent and come to you? But Lord, this time is yours. We just invite you in. And we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. We looked last week at the tabernacle. And we explained for some people that might have never heard of the tabernacle, what that is. And we looked at it. I'm going to flip through. I'm going to give the now 30-second to two-minute version of the recap. We looked at some of these pictures. This is what the tabernacle would have looked like at night. You had the pillar of cloud over it. You had all the tribes of Israel around the outside. Another couple pictures. During day, it would look like this. You've got the pillar of cloud uh, there during the daytime. You've got three tribes to the north and three to the south and three to the east and three to the west with the Levites camped around the inside. We deep dove last week and we looked at it. This is like a little diorama. It's probably no bigger than this table, which is really cool, the detail on it. We looked at some of these parts and what it might look like when it was being used in service, what the animals were there for, what the high priests and the other priests were there for, what the structure is in the back and these bronze colored things are. We we talked about that and we're going to just quickly review that. I like this picture because it takes you into maybe sort of a black and white x-ray image. Take away all the people, take away all the furnishings, take away all the color and the the movement, and just look at the tabernacle as just the tabernacle for a moment. We identified a couple of things. If you keep this in mind, I made it 2D here. We identified last time what this outside area was called, called the courtyard. Courtyard. We looked at this holy place as the first part. It's going to be referred to that in some of the scriptures we read today as the first section. Then we looked at the second section of the back room called the Holy of Holies. Sometimes you'll see it in your Bible as the most holy place. After that, we looked at the gate. I've got it there with the blue and the purple and the scarlet threads. It might have looked something like this, just a big gate. We looked at the bronze altar. We talked about, just briefly, the sacrifices that were made there. Didn't deep dive too much into that, why it's bronze, what its exact purposes were. We'll we'll get to that as we go through the book of Exodus. And we looked at the laver, a simple washing basin. We're going to see both the altar and the laver in use today as we go through the scriptures. 
This little picture here was just a bronze basin where the priests would have washed. In fact, there's a, um, we're going to go over the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and there's just these ceremonial washings and washings and multiple ritual cleanings. And this laver is the place where those washings would have taken place. We talked about the door. The door of the tabernacle would have looked something like this if you were standing just inside the gate and you were looking at the door. You would have been at about this height. It would have been above your head. Would have only been a few yards ahead of you. You can see there the, um, my daughter, bless her, just pointed me this. You can see here the laver, uh, the uh, bronze altar, the laver here, and the door over here. Is that showing up? That is so cool. Thanks, Grace. And then, as we come here, this is what it looked like in use. So you would have had a flame going, what is an actual barbecue. Animals being laid on the altar all day, all night. Priests cleansing themselves and changing garments in between there. People looking to come in and out of the gate to bring in their sacrifices. And then we switched gears to talk about what's inside the holy place. And here we have on the left side there, the golden lampstand. Would have been called the menorah in Hebrew. Looks something like that. We'll go over that later. The table of showbread. Literally table of bread that's shown to people. So fancy name there, table of showbread. And then you have here the altar of incense just in front of the Holy of Holies. Would have looked something like this with the, the four posts. We're going to read a section today. It has the, the high priest is going to take some of the blood of the bull and the goat and he's going to sprinkle them on the posts right there on the horns of the altar of incense. And it's, that's what that symbolizes right there in the red. And then we looked at the veil. The veil is that divide between the holy place and the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And we're definitely going to dig into that tonight and the significance of that. But what's so significant? What's, what makes the holy place more holy, or the holy of holies more holy than the holy place? It's because of what's inside. Here we did a cross-section. You've got the high priest here in his ephod and his garment. It looks something like this. You've got the altar of incense, the menorah, the showbread, and behind this veil, you would have had this beauty, which we're going to talk about tonight. And that's what we call the ark. And so we pick it up today at the ark. If you could, please, in your Bibles, turn to Exodus 25, verse 10. So we'll be in Exodus 25, verse 10. I'll be reading out of the uh, New American Standard Bible today. So the ark, Exodus 25, verse 10. And when I say the ark, if you've been reading through the Bible up to this point, you would naturally think of the ark. You'd be like, oh, we're talking about the ark. It's the only other mention of the ark in the Bible. But no, it's, it's weird. It, some people actually get really confused by this. They're like, wait, the ark, same letters, same spelling. Uh, why is it not that this big boat that's five, 600 more yards long, that's not the ark we're talking about. That doesn't fit in a little building. I didn't see that. You had this little box in there. Um, understand that we're not talking about that ark. No, not that ark. The ark in Exodus is an entirely different Hebrew word from the ark that's in Genesis. The ark made by Noah in Genesis is pronounced the teva in Hebrew and translated as a vessel. So you have a couple of different tevas in the scripture. You have the ark and the boat, the, the floating zoo, if some have called it, that Noah built. And then you have the basket that held Moses as a baby. The only two mentions of the teva in the Bible. 
That's a fascinating study in and of itself. Those are both salvation vessels, and it's a beautiful thing to study, those arcs. But we are not looking at that arc today. Today we're looking at the arc in, Hebrew, in Exodus, which in Hebrew is pronounced the Aron, the Aron. Uh, it's translated as a chest or a box. So if you think of this arc as just a box, I don't know about you, but since the invention of Amazon Prime, I know boxes well. I see them all day, every day. Um, I wish I could say it was mostly my wife ordering them, but I do my fair share. But boxes and boxes and boxes like I've never seen before. And this is maybe the most famous picture of the Ark that we know of. Anybody recognize that one? There you have Dr. Jones. Dr. Jones. Uh, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so here we have a very famous picture of the Ark. I will not be showing the uh, face-melting scene uh, from Raiders of the Lost Ark for some of you who are going to be disappointed by that. Um, but no, not this Ark. We are talking about this Ark. Other pictures of the Ark of the Covenant would look something like this. Now, it's funny. I've seen some people who get kind of tripped up when they see pictures that differ a little bit. Because something like this, you see poles that are going to be at the midpoint. You see um, angel wings that are kind of more in and down. Uh, you see feet that look a little different. You see a picture like this, and you see poles at the bottom. And you see the angels are kind of up. And I would just tell you, don't get tripped up by that. These are artist renderings or something that they read. Are either of these actually factually correct? Probably not. There's probably somewhere in between the two. But don't get tripped up on, well, the, were the wings at 48 degrees or at 92 degrees? Were they up here or were they down there? Were the poles carried? And th these are some online forms you can get into. into deep, were the poles carried at this point? Were the poles carried at this point? Because of what it says in the, like, that's, you're straining and it's not worth it, okay? So let's not get caught up in some of the minutia of details like that. But we'll dig in. In... Um, Exodus, in the Ark in Exodus 25, as you're flipping there, I'm going to tell you this. The Genesis Ark, the Exodus Ark, we know they're not the same because they're different words, obviously, the Teva versus the Aron, but they're different materials as well. You had that Genesis Ark being made of gopher wood and the Exodus Ark's made of acacia wood. Acacia wood, just to give you some background, is ridiculously dense and hard. They said it's something to this degree of 55% more dense and stronger than something like hickory which if you're at all building, that's really strong, dense, heavy wood. So this stuff is not just strong and dense, it also, because of the natural oils in it, make it decay and rot resistance, which means it's perfect for furniture. It can be left outside, it can be left inside, but natural oils of it are gonna make it so it's just not gonna rot in the elements, like some other woods that we have. And acacia are just practically one of the few plants that grow in the desert wilderness in that region. So wood is really hard to come by in the desert. We're not talking about the rainforests in the Amazon where you've got huge trunks. We're not talking about the sequoias uh, up north. We're talking about a desert region. And so it's very practical. And I was like, when the Bible supports itself with practicalities like that. Like, the, it's not saying that they use pine trees to build this. I'd be like, pine trees in the desert... I don't think so. You'd have to be in a cold, different climate to have those. But when it says they have acacia trees, I was like, all right, I see that. And for the idea that the tabernacle was used for over 450 years, and these parts, these furniture pieces would have been used for centuries, makes sense when you think of the type of wood that was used. It's not going to be a balsa wood, something that's fallen apart and brittle. This is dense stuff. And... This is what an acacia tree looks like. The ark was made, not by this exact tree, because that tree doesn't exist anymore, but something like this. 
flat-top trees that grow with nothing around them. And so when the Lord had called the people last time we looked to, for them to bring in, hey, bring in your acacia wood, bring in your gold and your silver, this was prized wood. This would have been not quite as rare as gold, but up there with, like, somebody would have had to have spent a good amount of time chopping down one of the world's hardest trees, planing it into boards, drying it, planking it, getting it furniture ready, all the labor and material and effort to take something that's so rare. You can go for miles and see an acacia tree and then another acacia tree a while later. So when God was calling people to give of their free will offerings last week, to us we thought, hmm. so they went to Home Depot, picked up a couple boards and brought it in. It's like, no, these guys were chopping down things and they weren't using chainsaws. They weren't using the modern equipment like we have. It was a big deal for you to give up your acacia wood to the Lord for the service of his kingdom. And so before we begin, we're going we're to dig in a little bit, but we're going to review terms because these are new terms. And instead of stopping through every single verse to explain it, I would rather just we go over them now. Then when we read through it, it'll all make sense. So first, you're going to see a word called a cubit. A cubit is a measure of length. Specifically, it is the length from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger. Now, if you're like me, I went last night and got an actual tape measure, and I measured the tip of my elbow to my middle finger, and I compared that to the tip of my wife's elbow to her middle finger, and we were about two to three inches apart. And so I said, well, how do you get a standard cubit if my cubit is 19 inches and hers was 16 and a half? What do you do there? Well, they did have a standard, so they would make a rod off of that. They said, okay, this distance from here, we're going to call that a cubit. We'll make a, a rod that length, and then we'll use that rod as a ruler, in a sense. We use a ruler now for a foot. We use a yardstick or a meter stick for a meter. They would have made a, uh, a cubit stick. Does that make sense? And that would have been their standards. They'd go around and say, okay, here, here, here. But it looks something just simply like that if you're measuring it. Next word we're going to see, um, and again, it's roughly 18 inches. So their standard was actually just between my wife's and I's. So if you're thinking about what the ark was in terms of size, because no one really talks about the ark. You just assume it's a box, and you kind of, if you didn't know Indiana Jones carrying it and see perspective there, it's almost four feet by a little over two feet by two feet. So four feet the long way, two feet tall, two feet wide. Looks like a good-sized nightstand, all right? a couple pieces of Ikea furniture that were almost exactly this, and I thought about putting pictures up there. Next, we're going to see a word called testimony. We sometimes uh, refer to that like what I did when I shared to the idea. I shared a testimony. I shared a, a story about my background. That's not what this means. In, in this context, testimony is going to mean specifically the, the two stone tablets. The Ten Commandments were written on both sides of the tablets. Those two stone tablets are referred to as the testimony of the ark, okay? Looks something like that. Next, we're going to see a phrase called the mercy seat in verse 17. The mercy seat is simply the lid for the box. So the Ark of the Covenant is its own box. It has the poles and the rings that run through it. The top of the box has its own name. It's actually its own piece of furniture, and it would look something like this. It's called the mercy seat. And so if you didn't know that, you might wonder, is somebody supposed to sit down on that? Is it, they call it a seat. Why is it called a seat? And we'll go into that. But no, just this, sometimes you have to make a word for yourself. When you think mercy seat, just think lid. It's the lid of the box. Uh, those are my simple mnemonics. When I think ark, I think box. When I think mercy seat, I think lid. 
So if you're reading through it and we think that, that way, it, it should help and make a little bit of sense. Then we see this word for the first time here, cherubim. A cherubim, singular is cherub, plural is cherubim. It's an angelic being with wings. And so you're going to see it described looking something like this. The cherubim are going to be on top of the mercy seat, which sits on top of the Ark of the Covenant. So if I speak that Christianese language and I say again, the cherubim are on top of the mercy seat, which sits on top of the Ark. Yeah, we're tracking? Makes sense? Perfect. And here we have a picture of it kind of pulling it all together. Here you have the Ark with the testimony inside. Next to that is going to be the mercy seat with the cherubim on top of that. Can everybody see it? So if you can see it now, when we read through it a little bit, these phrases will make a lot of sense, okay? And so let's dig in now. Exodus 25, 10 through 22. I've got it back here behind me, but feel free to read along again in the New American Standard. Verse 10. They shall construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide, and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and out. You shall overlay it, and you shall make a gold molding around it. You shall cast four gold rings for it and fasten them on its four feet. And two rings shall be on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. And so, you know, it was carried by four people. Each person got one end of one pole and it was carried by four people. And it was carried, in fact, it says, uh, by the Levites on their shoulders. So if you're thinking they carried it down here or one guy shrugged it, uh, like you see guys picking up a refrigerator or something now, one guy would have one end of one pole and another guy would have the other end of the other pole and it would be like that. Verse 13, you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it. You shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. Verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. It was the exact fit on top of the ark. You shall make two cherubim of gold, Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherubim at one end and one cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim, excuse me, of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. So both angels, as you saw in the pictures, were to face in. You shall put the mercy seat, or the lid, on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony, or the Ten Commandments, which I will give to you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. So that's the passage we're looking at. And so we have in here a description of the ark. And I thought we can go a couple different ways. I thought maybe we'd dive in deep and we talk about the gold overlaying the wood and how the wood was symbolic of Jesus being his natural earthly self wrapped in the divinity and the gold pictures. And I thought, that's cool. There's something to be gleaned from that for sure. I chose the route rather to tell the story. There are a couple different instances when the ark is being used. And I thought it'd be better to say, hey, how is the ark being used? What's the purpose of this thing? As opposed to just talking about the box in and of itself, let's talk about how the ark was interacted with. And it wasn't interacted with very often, and we should know that. And so I wanted to talk to you about the purpose of the ark, 
what it did, how it was used. And in looking like that, understand that first and foremost, Leviticus 16.2 says the ark was God's dwelling place. And we talked about that. The idea of the tabernacle in general was just the idea that God was going to tabernacle, or it means dwell, amongst his people. And in the heart and the middle of his people as well. We talked last week about how it's a picture of God in the Old Testament saying, hey, I want to be in the middle of my people. And I'm going to bring Jesus one day as a picture to be in the middle of his people. And how God says, after Jesus goes, I want to put the Holy Spirit in the middle of your hearts. And then God in the future was using as a picture to say, in heaven, I want to dwell with you and tabernacle with you and be amongst and in the middle of my people for eternity in heaven. And so this, ta- this ark is the localized center of God's dwelling place. Leviticus 16.2, the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil. It means you can't just mosey in and walk in whenever you want inside the Holy of Holies. Before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. God said, you just walk right in, you'll die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. So God's saying that I will be in the middle between the wings of the, of the cherubs, cherubim, I would be there, and my localized presence, my glory would be right there, such that you can't just walk right in. It, it would be like walking into somebody just walking into their house. You, you don't just get to walk into someone's house. This is God's house, he's saying. Numbers 789, it puts it this way. When Moses went to the tabernacle of meeting to speak with him, that is the Lord, he heard the voice of one speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony. From between the two cherubim, thus he spoke to him. Understand that when you read this passage in Numbers, Moses did not just walk into the ark. Moses himself had to speak to the Lord from behind the veil. Moses did not get to go behind the veil to go into the Holy of Holies to speak to the Lord. So when you hear the stories, and you'll see many of them, like this one in Numbers, when Moses is talking to the Lord, he's speaking behind a curtain. Why is that? Why wasn't he allowed to go in? Well, again, it was just the high priest. It was just, and we're going to look at those scriptures in a little bit, the high priest was the only one who was allowed to go in. Well, when was that? Does he go? It said you can't just go in any old time in Leviticus, so when can you go in? The high priest was allowed to go in one day of the year. That day was called the Day of Atonement. In Hebrew, it's called Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement, which if you're like me in Jewish calendars, uh, it kind of goes over my head. You start talking things. I'm going to help to break it down very quickly. The Yom Kippur is the most solemn and holy day of the year. Of all the feasts you know about, the Feast of Tabernacle, the Feast of Booths, and the different Feast of First Fruits, all those things, there's none of them that hold a candle to Yom Kippur. Why? Well, I'll tell you this. Rosh Hashanah, and if, I, I, if, if you're from Israel, it would be Rosh Hashanah. Um, and to me, me speaking Hebrew is going to be like Napoleon Dynamite speaking Spanish. Like, yo quiero un burrito, por favor. Like, it's going to be really bad, so don't um, mock my Hebrew speaking. It's going to be terrible. Um, I don't speak Hebrew. I don't know it, but I'm doing my best. But Rosh Hashanah is going to be the start of the year. To them, it would be their New Year's Eve day. It's the start of the new year. Okay, it's the seventh month, first day of the month. It's, it's just the start of their calendar year, if you'll think of it that way. So if Rosh Hashanah is the first day, the New Year's Day, Yom Kippur is 10 days later. 
Rosh Hashanah, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, excuse me, Yom Kippur, 10 days later. Make sense? So what's the significance of that, of Yom Kippur being so important, the most holy and solemn day being 10 days after the new year? The sacrifices on Yom Kippur were made to atone, this is the word you're going to see a lot of, simply means to cover, to put a covering on, to cover the sins of the people of Israel that were committed over the past year. So if you were in the year 2000, and you were on Yom Kippur, the 10th day of that year, and you had just celebrated Rosh Hashanah nine, 10 days earlier, you would be celebrating that your sins were being covered and atoned for in 1999. Those sins of the prior year, not the sins of that coming year, not the sins of the year you're in or the sins of the future. You were thanking God that all the stuff that you did over the past year, all the knucklehead things you did were now being covered by God. In essence, it's just the day when you're like, man, thanks, Lord, for just taking that away. There's a huge relief, a huge burden lifted. It's something that as you, every day, every day of your life, as you're just blowing it and blowing it and blowing it, you're looking forward to the day when you know with absolute certainty that God says, I take all that, I take it away. And so great significance to this day, and it's one day a year. And so we'll look at that. What did that look like? How was, it, how was the ark used on this special day, one day per year? Well, it was used with a bull and two goats. And I'll talk about those. The bull was simply this. It's, the bull was a burnt offering. In the courtyard, the priest would lay his hand on a bull and symbolically transfer his sin and the sin of his household onto the bull. So he would pray something like, Lord, I thank you that right now you are transferring my sins and the sins of my house onto this animal. Very symbolic act happening there. And so then he would take the animal, it's Leviticus 16.6, the bull would then be sacrificed. They'd slit the throat of the bull, they'd collect the, the blood that's coming out in a bowl, Yes, it gets a little bloody just tonight. And that blood would be sprinkled seven times on the mercy seat. So the priest has laid his hands on the bull. His sin has symbolically been transferred onto this animal. The animal would be slain and sacrificed. The blood would be collected. And now at this moment, the high priest, who has not done this for 364 days, hoping he hasn't forgotten how to do it, where the entrance is, how to do it, what it's supposed to look like, he then, shakingly, no doubt, because if he does it wrong, he dies, he goes in and says, it's been 364 days. Oh, I hope I remember how to do this. And he takes that bowl in, no doubt, not wanting to make eye contact, humbly coming in. And then he approaches the, through the veil for the very first time. Parting through the veil, going low under it, coming through, taking the blood, and then sprinkling it right on the mercy seat seven times. And you think, oh, he must be done. No, he's just beginning. <laughs> The sins of just the high priest were now covered. The high priest was now able to function as a priest because, again, the high priest is like you and I, just a man, full of sin. No better, no worse, really, just another sinner amongst all of us, but given the role of being the high priest. So it's not like this sinner could just function in the role of being this mediator, this person who can now conduct some sort of ceremony between a perfect and holy God and a sinful man. This 
person, this guy, this high priest, had to make sure, and God made it such, that he first had to become righteous in the eyes of the Lord. And that sacrifice, that animal, was just to make sure that now he could proceed to be that mediator for the rest of the people. Were the sins forgiven? No, not, not exactly. They weren't, they weren't forgiven. The sacrifice was what we call the propitiation, the appeasement of the wrath of God. The blood sacrifice was made, and it covered the sins for the time being. It's kind of like God put a pause. He said, you know what? My perfect judgment, my perfect justice needs to be poured out. My wrath is poured on sin. It's just the nature of the world. God says sin deserves a punishment. And, and really, innately in us, we get that. There's not like a, a time in which we see uh, a shooting that happens in our country. We don't say, I hope that guy, you know, th- there needs to be something. He can't just walk off. You don't get to just live a normal life after that. There needs to be justice, right? In, innately in us, we understand justice and judgment. And there's something about that that we get. And so this sacrifice appeased that. God's sense of justice said, okay, blood was shed for those sins I'm going to look the other way right now. I'm going to cover that. That dark stain, I just think of it kind of like a, I put a cloth over it. I covered it for right now. We'll deal with that later, is what he's saying. It's covered. You're good. For another year, you're good. There are, on the Day of Atonement, a whole bunch. Uh, There are chapters and chapters written to this, which we don't have time for today. But there are additional sacrifices. There's washings. We talked about the labor. There's, I think there's five different clothing changes, that wardrobe changes that happen. Uh, Three or four different washings in and out of there. There's incense that are brought in to have the area filled with smoke. Uh, There's all kinds of beautiful and complex intricacies involved in the ceremony surrounding Yom Kippur. We're not going to touch on all of those. It would just, that's literally a four-week study in and of itself, just that one moment, uh, those series of moments. And so we're going to move on. Right now, we're going to just simply focus on the ark. We're going to forget the rest of the um, ceremonial things that are done. And again, we're here to focus on just the ark tonight. You, we talked about a bull and two goats. The bull was there for the sins of just the high priest. Now you have two goats. Two goats would be taken into the tabernacle. And I say the tabernacle, I mean into the ga- through the gate into the courtyard. Two goats get taken in. Then one goat, the, the high priest uh, cast lots, what that looks like, we don't exactly know, but basically he, he reaches in, uh, grabs one and says, this one's going to go to this goat, and he reaches in and says, this one's going to go to this goat, and then he looks at him, and then one goat was said to be sacrificed, and one goat was meant uh, to be left alive, and we'll look at that. The goat that was sacrificed was the second time that the high priest would take the blood of that sacrificed goat, walk in through the veil, and again, sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat seven times. That sacrifice was made to cover, again, his sins were covered. That now represented covering the entirety of the people of Israel. So you have now all of Israel covered. You have the high priest in his household, and you have all of the nation of Israel covered by these two sacrifices. But you still got one more goat. What's with the other goat? The other goat is what we call the scapegoat. Leviticus 16, um, verses 8 and 10 talk a lot about the scapegoat. The the high priest would place his hands again on the scapegoat 
and symbolically transfer not his sins this time, but all the sins of all the nation of Israel would be placed onto the second goat. Lord, I now symbolically place all the sins of the people of Israel onto this goat as you've commanded me to do. I lay hands now. The transfer is complete, Lord. They're onto this goat. That scapegoat would then be led out of the tabernacle. That scapegoat was allowed to enter and exit rather through the gate and back out in the wilderness. No longer under the care and the protection of the owners who had raised it and fed it. That, that goat was basically led so far away from camp and just let to go. And it was completely forgotten about. And it was a beautiful picture. That picture, the scapegoat, was that perfect picture of God saying, I remember your sins no more. I am taking all the sins out of the camp. It's gone. No one's ever going to see that goat again. No one's ever going to remember it. And God was making that perfect picture that Jesus is, he's all three of those animals as a sacrifice. Jesus is the bull. He's the one that covers, he's our high priest. He's the one that covers the priest. He's the, he's the first goat. He's the one that says, okay, I'm willing to sacrifice myself to be the mercy seat offering for the people of Israel and for everybody. He says, I'm also the one who will make it away so that all your sins will just be forgotten about. From our perspective, understand this. Your sins in relation to God, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, are remembered no more. He tosses them to a sea of forgetfulness, the Bible says. And he says, there's nothing that you've done that he kind of keeps in the back kernel of his mind and says, I remember what you did. It's completely, completely washed away and forgotten. It's just forgotten. What a beautiful picture. And so Jesus, being our scapegoat, we're going to look at all these just in a little bit more detail in the time that we have. What's with, I want to get into that picture. We talked about the bull and his blood being sprinkled in the mercy seat. We talked about that goat sprinkling there on the mercy seat. The mercy seat, the lid of the ark, the shed blood, we talked about this, meant, hey, their sins are covered for the past year. But if you're like me and you start reading this and you start to get into Leviticus a little more, there's like a lot of blood. I'm not a doctor. I didn't become a doctor for just that reason. I, one sight, and I'm like, ew, you're good. You're good. You're good. Mom can help you with that. Get her, ask for a Band-Aid. I, I don't like blood. I'm not super into it, especially other people's blood, especially blood of animals. Like, that's just not, that's no. I don't, we don't have any animals in our house. I don't, I can't deal, I'm not, it's not for me. Um, but I asked the question, what's all the blood? Why, why these sacrifices? Why blood? Why sprinkling? And, and on, we talked about it being on the tips of the altar of incense, and it's poured out at the basin of the, the bronze laver. There's, there's just blood literally everywhere. What's with all the blood? It's a substitutionary act for the perfect and divine justice of God to be carried out. What's that look like? What does that mean? Leviticus 17.11, Lord spoke to Moses saying, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls for it's the blood that makes atonement for the soul. 
See, again, we talked about our sin requires a just response from God. And God is able to balance out that idea of perfect justice with perfect mercy at the mercy seat. So again, God being just and perfect and holy and true and bringing a perfect judgment has to judge sin. Sin cannot go unchecked. It doesn't get to just go like a free pass. Sin gets judged. And the penalty of sin is death, it says in Romans. And here we read Leviticus, it says, blood must be shed for sins to be dealt with. And so God, in his perfect mercy, says, I require a blood sacrifice, but instead of asking for your sacrifice and your blood, I'm willing to give the picture of somebody else's blood being spilled in your place. And so the blood, what's all the blood about? The blood is about a picture of it's not your blood. It's a substitutionary act where another being's blood is shed in your place. Amen to that. Thank you, Jesus, because I tell you what, I love justice, but I really love mercy. Every time my kids mess up, they do some knucklehead thing. My wife and I look at each other and we say, you know what? Do we discipline today or do we have mercy? And there's rare occasions we say, you know what? Let's just have mercy today. Let's just not give them the discipline that they deserve. And we go up to them, and they're already shaking and crying. They're already like, oh, man, I'm getting, um, um, I'm getting it. I'm getting the pow-pows or whatever it may be. And then we look at them, and we simply open up our arms, and we say, hey, today's mercy. And the tears, they dry. <laughs> yeah, I get mercy. I say, yeah. And I always ask them one question. Do you like mercy? Say, yeah, I love mercy. I'm like, good. That's how it should be. You should love the idea of mercy. You should love the idea that you're not getting the punishment, the penalty that you deserve. What are we here for today? I'd say fall in love with mercy today. What am I here to get you to do to appreciate God's mercy deeper? To understand that the sacrifices made are in place of your sacrifice. That these perfect sacrifices um, point Obviously, it covered the people back then, but they point to something greater to come for us. The sacrifices of the animals and the bulls and goats was just a picture at the time to point to the greater sacrifice that wouldn't have to be made over and over and over again year after year, but would instead be made once and for all. And I'm going to read here in the last three minutes we've got Hebrews 9 and 10. And, and I knew I wouldn't have enough time to read the whole thing. And there's sections of it. So if it looks like I can't count, like it goes two, three, seven, one, I can't count. But they are meant to be removed. So for time's sake, we could just read through, okay? So we don't want to read the whole thing. We'd be here for a good amount of time. But Hebrews chapter 9, um, I've got the numbers up here. I'll try to read it out when I switch or skip a verse or two. Again, only for time's sake and just for brevity's sake to get to the points that we're talking about tonight. Hebrews 9 says this. Oh, Lord, guide us here. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which, and again, this is talking about the holy place, the outer versus the inner being the holy of holies. The outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread, this is called the holy place. We looked at that tonight. That should be clear. Behind the second veil, they call the door the first veil sometimes, and the second veil they call just the veil. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies 
Verse 7, but into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood. Double negatives means he took blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. But, verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption." For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much, means if the Old Testament stuff kind of did the job in covering sins back then, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, the perfect sacrifice, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Verse 22, we skip ahead. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies, that's the Old Testament things of things, uh, in heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifice than things. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God, for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often. Again, he's referring to the fact that the high priest did this every year on Yom Kippur, the 10th day of the year, year after year, for centuries. Even after the tabernacle, when it was the temple, for centuries and centuries. Verse 25, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that's not his own, Otherwise, verse 26, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifices of himself. And inasmuch as it's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. It means he's coming back for those who have put their faith that his first time coming and his shed blood was sufficient enough. He's going to come back again. Hebrews 10, again, I skip a few verses from 9 to 10. Every priest, referring to the old priestly system that we read about in Leviticus and Numbers. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never really take away sins. But he, that is Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time, not multiple things, multiple times, not multiple animals, multiple years, for one offering himself, he perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant which I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws upon their hearts and write them in their minds. This is the last page. He says then, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will no longer remember. Remember no more. Picture the scapegoat. Now, 
where there is forgiveness of these things, an offering for sin is no longer required. It means Jesus, it's done. If, if, if he is sufficient and if his one sacrifice has covered all the sins for anybody who wants it, then there's no more need for the tabernacle. There's no more need for the ark and the mercy seat. There's no more need for all of these priestly things. There's no more need for the animals. It's not required, verse 18. 19, therefore, so now that stuff's done. It's away. You could say it's finished. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let's approach God with sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I'm going to flash it up very quickly. He's your mercy seat. God's wrath sufficed, appeased, propitiated in the person of Jesus Christ. We don't get justice, we get mercy. The Bible says, just flat out a couple times, mercy triumphs over, just, over justice, over judgment. Amen? Mercy triumphs. God says, if I have to weigh two awesome things, I pick mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Why? For our sakes for love, to not give us what we deserve, but instead let Jesus be that perfect sacrifice in our place. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's one of those fancy Christian words, propitiation. Literally, Broken down, that word means, it's the beautiful thing, that word means mercy seat. It's actually translated half the time mercy seat, other time propitiation. That word means mercy seat. So as we look at the ark, understanding where the blood was sprinkled, the picture of mercy, where your sacrifice is not required, but instead Jesus takes your place. He's the mercy seat. What a huge and huge and big deal for us. So again, last thought here. It's only the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect and spotless Lamb of God that we now can boldly enter into the presence of God. The veil on the cross was torn from top to bottom. That idea that we're kept out, that only somebody else has to go in? No, he's the high priest of the order of Melchizedek. He's the high priest who now said, I'm coming in, I'm making a way, and that veil is torn because we don't need it anymore. You've got direct access to the Father. You get to cry out, Abba, Father, to the one who made you, who loved you, who sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. Amen. Amen. And that's what it's all about. The ark's about mercy. It's not getting what we deserve. So I ask you tonight, do you love mercy? Oh, I hope you do. I got a nine-year-old, an 11-year-old. Every tear is removed from their eyes. Smile upon their face when they think about it. And they say, Dad, I love mercy. 
It's my hope, my prayer tonight that you would see the picture, see the beauty of it, and just say, I love mercy. Hallelujah.